This is Creative Mornings, a new podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp helps businesses grow. If you're just getting started or you're already building a growing business, MailChimp makes it easy to connect with your customers and sell more stuff. It's totally free to get started, no expiring trial, and no credit card required. For more sophisticated marketers, pro features like multivariate testing offer the same power you'd expect in an enterprise marketing platform in an intuitive, easy-to-use interface. Learn more at MailChimp.com. This episode's also brought to you by Dropmark. Dropmark is the smart way to organize your bookmarks, files, and notes into visual collections. Use it on your own or with your creative team to gather inspiration, review designs, and plan your next big idea. Invite your clients to pitch concepts, gather feedback, and get things done. Dropmark is all your stuff in one simple, visual, private place. To get a free month for your team, visit dropmark.com slash creative mornings. One, two, three. Happy New Year! Oh, that's so good. Hey everybody, welcome to the Creative Mornings Podcast. This is Matt, and this week's episode, which is also our season two finale, by the way, features a lecture from David Kelly. If you're not familiar with David, he's the founder of IDEO and the creator of Stanford's D-School. If you're not familiar with IDEO, this podcast will shine a little light on that for you, and I can tell you that their span of work ranges from the early days of Apple computers, IDEO designed their first ever mouse, to more recently redesigning the education system of Peru. It's a pretty wide span. At its core, IDEO takes an approach called design thinking. And I'll quote Tim Brown, IDEO's president and CEO. Design thinking is a human-centered approach to innovation that draws from the designer's toolkit to integrate the needs of people, the possibilities of technology, and the requirements for business success. In his lecture from May of 2014 at our Creative Mornings New York City chapter, David Kelly gives some examples of his work with IDEO and the D-School. And though the man is as humble as can be, you'll see how over the course of his outstanding career, he's helped expand the role of design in the world. Hello, Matt. Oh, and also, I was incredibly fortunate to have him on the phone to talk about this episode and his lecture. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Well, <laughs> they threw me a... a, a sometime between i went to my last meeting and now somebody gave me it was really nice and gave me a new computer and put it on my desk which of course didn't have skype on it uh-huh. so i've been frantically downloading skype the last and this is the first skype call on this new computer so you know as an old guy i'm i mean my 14 year old daughter could have done that like that but i'm so pleased with myself that i actually can see you after all that <laughs> that <laughs> That work. Good. Okay. I'm sorry, but I'm sorry to be so enthusiastic, but you know, these small, small accomplishments. No, not, no, not at all. You're speaking directly to me. I, uh, I still get overly excited every time technology works to my benefit as well. Well, you know, it's funny because so I'm old enough and, you know, I was very much involved in the early Apple computers and so forth. And so when I try to convince my, uh, 18 year old daughter who, you know, like works part time at Google and knows 27 languages and stuff, that I was state of the art, you right, know, like at right. that time, you know, when when computers had, you know, 48K and, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> and they were called the Apple II or the, uh, you know, TRS-80 and stuff. And it just doesn't impress her. It's just not, she's just not 
I said, I used to be a contender, you know. Really? So is, is it lost on her? It is. That's surprising to me. Yeah, well, you know, she just had, uh, it's hard to imagine, you know, the old man being state of the art, given how lame I am now, I think. It would be that. <laughs> That's nonsense. So um, I've already briefed our listeners on some of IDEO's credits, but I would love, in your own words, if you could tell us a little bit about how that part of your life came about. So uh, IDEO was, when I graduated from school, uh, from uh, from Stanford, uh, I wanted to work with my friends. That's that was really the answer. I mean, I'm I'm not sure. You know, at first I thought we were going to like make jewelry in some Victorian San Francisco and sell it out of the basement during Christmas or something. I didn't I don't know what I thought, but I mean, it was just it was really um, I had worked in corporate America and didn't find it that much fun working with people that they decided I should work with, and so I thought um, I really wanted to to be the kind of ringleader and, and, uh, and have, uh, have all my friends working together. And so that was really it. And of course I graduated from design school, but every, um, design practice that I knew about was, uh, you know, a big name, you know, Raymond Loy or Henry Dreyfus or something. And I wasn't that kind of person. I'm, I'm not the, I'm not the star. I'm the, um, person who builds the stage and let other, other people perform on it. I mean, I, I'm plenty of designer and plenty of hands on it in those days did, you know, my share of the design, but wanted to have a firm that was uh, much more a team uh, effort. And so that was the start of the company. And then uh, it morphed into uh, working with other people and, uh, and, and merging with them. And so IDEO was a, a direct result, basically, of me wanting to work with my friends and wanting to, um, to have a kind of a, a more collaborative uh, team sport to design rather than the individual superstar flavor of design at the time. And while we're getting the history, can you tell us a little bit about how the D-School got started? Uh, the D-School is just uh, after, I've, I've been a professor at Stanford for a long time. I got tenure and all those things, and I started teaching with different professors. I taught with an art professor. I taught with a business school professor. I taught with a computer science professor. And I saw the kids light up when the, when the three of us up in front of the classroom would start fighting with each other about different topics. And I just saw how much that really made them uh, come alive when they realized that they had to figure out what the right answer was rather than this kind of sage on stage that has the right answer who's like holding it back and keeping it from you and you mm -hmm. you say 12 and they say no that's not it you know it's like it's not like that where we were working on projects we didn't know the answer to but seeing that and so it was, I was just lucky that I pushed and pushed for that to happen and eventually I found a donor a man named House of Platner who's the at SAP, and they funded it, and Stanford really liked the idea once I had $40 million, uh, <laughs> and uh, so that, that, that's how that came to be, but it's um, it's taken off beyond my wildest dreams, you know, we have hundreds of professors and 100,000 students, and um, it's all an opt-in culture, I mean, everybody comes there because they want to, I don't grant degrees, barely give any uh, credit for classes, don't pay the professors, so, so unique in a university that it's opt-in, and so everybody's there because it's an extraordinary place to be and because they want to be there completely different and the real gratifying thing is the number of professors who call from other universities and say you know um, you know i really want to do this uh, my dean wouldn't have never wouldn't would have never let me do it but since stanford's doing it um i, I get a crack at it can you help me uh put the equivalent of a d school at my university and so um that's re that's really rewarding because my, my lot in life is to get as many people as possible to 
you know, get this thing I call creative confidence. By the way, Creative Confidence is a book that David wrote along with his brother, Tom Kelly, which was published in 2013. And in David's own words from his lecture that you're about to hear, it's a good airplane read. So being based out of Stanford, was this lecture planned? Because you gave it in New York City. Were you, were you already coming here? No, no, I come to, I mean, I'm just a person who loves New York. So give me an excuse to come to New York. You know, I'm, it's a, one of the few cities that I get in the cab at the airport and, and I get like excited as I'm going in. You know, it's not a, it doesn't feel like a task for me. It feels like I'm doing my, um, I'm doing myself a favor by going to New York. Right. But no, I came specifically for that. Um, Tini was introduced uh, to me by um, a guy who's uh, part one of my partners in the in the New York office named Fred Dust, and uh, he uh, he had also turned me on to Creative Mornings in the first place, and so he introduced us and thought it would be fun, and I of course was a big fan of uh, by watching Creative Mornings, and so it was kind of an honor to be on, and so it was an easy decision. Um, I hadn't hadn't met. Tina, you know, I knew about the tattoos, of course, but I hadn't met, met Tina. Uh, I hadn't met Tina until uh, till I got there and uh, gave the talk. It was through IDEO New York that we met. If you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know that the Tina David is referring to is Creative Morning's founder, Tina Roth-Eisenberg, and the tattoos that he mentions is in reference to one of Tina's other ventures, the designer temporary tattoo brand, Tatley. David and I spoke a little further about the modern designer's role and how he manages to keep himself challenged. We'll get to hear that a little bit later, but right now, here's David Kelly speaking at Creative Mornings New York City from May of 2014 as part of a series on freedom with his lecture, Design is Magical. Enjoy. Hello, is this working? Yes. I decided to not show any slides. Can you imagine that? A designer who's not going to show any slides? We have a... At the D school, we have a no PowerPoint, uh, you know, rule. So we'll see how that goes. Anyway, but um, I and I also wanted to spend as much time taking your questions as possible. I've heard this stuff before that I'm about to say, but I haven't heard what you're interested in. So hopefully, we'll, we'll I'll talk for a very short time, and then we'll and we'll open it up to you for questions. But um, I wouldn't wanted to miss this. You know, it's um, it's such a great time for design, for designers for creative people. Um, you know, most of my career, I felt like I was at the kids' table, you know, that, you know, that the CEOs and those guys were, were in the real meeting, you know, the thing that was really going on, or the university faculty was in the real meeting, and I was the design person. And every once in a while, somebody would walk over to the kids' table and say, where can I get shoes like that? You know, that, that was my role for the higher-ups, was, you know, where do you get those glasses? Right? Um, but that, that's not the case today. I mean, we are center stage and working on the most, most important and most strategic problems in the world and at the university. I mean, I actually had the university president come up to me and say, you can have all the money you want, just make all Stanford students confident in their creative ability. I mean, that's different than where'd you get those shoes? You gotta admit, right? As far as uh, my importance at the the importance of design and that thing. So I've never really in my life, uh, I'm not a competitive person at all in anything. Um, I've never really um, thought it was my role to promote IDEO. There's plenty of people in the audience. Fred's dust right there, that's his job to promote IDEO. But, um, but so on my whole career, I've talked about design and its importance and how I thought it was underserved. 
I mean, I really think of my job as making design more important in the world, and that's what I go around doing. So at first, um, how I got into this was I was an engineer, but I, I was in love with industrial design. I just didn't have the talent or, or the training or whatever you want to say. And so I started a company that um, would help industrial design companies, you know, keep the exciting part of their, their products all the way through to, to manufacture. And what, what normally happens if you were an industrial designer in those days was you'd come up with this beautiful, magical thing, and I do think design is magical. Out of nowhere comes this, this, this picture of the future that, um, that nobody else could have come up with. And, um, and so I try to keep the exciting bits of that. Um, my company would try to keep the exciting bits of that uh, as it was, instead of having it compromised away, which is what normally happened. You know, it was like, it's much easier if we don't make that square, you know, if we, if we like, you know, painted a color we already have, you know, it's, it was that kind of mentality. And so, um, so we as engineers tried to make that happen. But we were super design sensitive, and I remember that the turning point for me to move from thinking of myself as an engineer to thinking of myself as some kind of designer, not the same kind as, you know, Dieter Rams. But I um, was one of uh, the head of the one of the most important uh, industrial design firms in the in the world. Actually, said to me, you know, we do the design. What do you do? And that broke my heart when he said, you do. We do the design. What do you do? Because I do design. You know, but it was just a different kind of design, right? a different definition of design. And so from that uh, point forward, I started um, trying to change what design was to make it more um, inclusive of more and more people. Right. So um, <clears throat> the first thing was happens that I merged with some industrial design firms and with my good friend Bill Mogridge. I miss him every day. And... Uh, and so we've built this firm that was more holistic, that was doing strategy work, that was doing ex experiences and, and services in addition to doing um, product design, which is what we called ourselves at first. So we'd moved to, to that. And so design became bigger and more inclusive. And then uh, Bill Mogridge had this lovely notion. One day he came into my office and said, you know, I think this design of this digital stuff is way too important to, let this, to leave it to the software engineers. We have to take this over. And he called it, uh, he called what he wanted to do soft face. I'm still not sure what that has to do with anything. It, it quickly became interaction design. But, um, but Bill always had funny names for things. And so once, once he started that, and we started focusing on that, and then came, um, then came anthropologists. And pretty soon, um, design meant making impact in the world, right? Not designing a new podium or table, right? And, um, and so that felt really good um, because I really think that design has something to say, you know, it has some uh, way to routinely come up with ideas that are new to the world, right? And that is really important. So what happened then was, so we're over here having a good time, you know, cute, you know, like, and I'd go to do something, and they'd say, you're cute, but, like, let's talk to the CEOs, you know. And then uh, it's gradually moved away from that. Um, the, the, one of the big impacts was this IBM study that was uh, 1,500 CEOs, and they asked them, 
what was, what's the most important thing in your company? This is worldwide, 1,500 CEOs. And they said, the most important thing in the company is to get, to be more creative, to routinely innovate, right? To, um, you know, come up with things. Instead of just selling a revised version of what we had last year, come up with a breakthrough, coming up with breakthrough ideas. Doesn't that sound like us? So, um, so that switch has made us um, have to become more um, mindful of our process. And so we started talking about design as design thinking, not taking away at all from design, just saying that there was, that the frame, the mindset that we use to talk about these things, to come up with new ideas, is design thinking. And I've been, I've been saying that for years, I would say, like my students at Stanford are not particularly uh, world-class at the artistic part, and they're not particularly world-class at the technical part. They're more um, generalist in the sense of how do you like come up with ideas. And so I used to say, when they would complain that you know my portfolio doesn't look like it came from Art Center, and I can't do fourth-order differential equations in my, in my head like my other engineering friends, like, you know, what am I? And I said, ah, oh, no, you're an expert at design process. And somehow, it just didn't go anywhere. I don't know. And we, we're doing the same thing, exactly. And we started saying, no, it's design thinking. It's a way of thinking. It's a mindset. And for some reason, that took off. Right? And so from, from then on, um, we started taking on projects where the fact that we could codify, the fact that we could talk about what we were going to do, and that, it, and that the people, our clients, we're realizing that we were going to come up with something that they couldn't come up with, right? That was a, the, it always surprised me when I go, when an idea would win a big job over some more, you know, obviously a business savvy company. And I'd, we'd win the job, not all the time. But when I got to see the CEO and I'd say, why'd you pick us? And he said, you know, if I hired this other firm, I kind of know what they would come up with. I, I, went to, I went to Harvard Business School. They went to Harvard Business School. I kind of know what they would come up with. I got no freaking clue what you guys are going to come up with. Right? And that's where we wanted them to be, right? Because we want to paint a picture of the future with, uh, with our new ideas in it. And then, um, so now we have this mindset, we have this process, uh, we have uh, uh, the big win of design thinking was literally that it was a human-centered process that people would sign up to work together on. At Stanford, I, we must have started for 20 years talked about multidisciplinary teams working together. We talked about it. We would go to these meetings, we'd fight a bit, and we'd go, we'd leave and say, I'm never going back to that meeting again. You know? And so what happened was that with the design thinking as, as a human-centered process, it's so um, acceptable to different kinds of people that the end result was we could get a doctor and an opera singer and a philosopher and a business person to actually adopt it as their process, and then they could build on each other's ideas. And if you can get that diversity of thinkers, and you can get them to work together and build on each other's ideas, you're definitely going to come up with new to the world stuff, right? And so that was the big win of design thinking, that it was human-centered enough that uh, basically everybody would, um, would sign up to use it, because it's building empathy for people and trying to understand what, you know, what's meaningful to people. And everybody signs up to that. You know, if you want to, 
you want to soften up one of these tough people t- talking about their children. And that's what's meaningful to them, right? And so we're able to do that. So anyway, what happened from there, what, well, it just exploded into the kind of projects that we were hired to do, that we could um, hired at IDEO or that we were um, allowed to do with the D school. Big, you know, change the world kind of stuff. My favorite project I'm, uh, that um, that has done recently that exemplifies how you actually use this process the best that I know of is, is, um, is we looked at uh, improving the lunch experience at uh, San Francisco Unified School District. 53,000 lunches are served a day there. And so, as usual, we go in and and, you know, with guns blazing. But what we're really doing is looking at um, what's meaningful to these kids. And it's pretty clear that the kids have not been in the design equation before, right? And, you know, you know the process of them, you don't just go in and ask the kids what they want. In fact, we do that, of course, and the kids say, you know, if you just start serving ice cream from the minute we get in the room <laughs> till we leave, that'd be a perfect lunch. But you don't. When you get in and you start watching them and understanding, you start to see that lunch is not about food. We, you know, we were thinking we'd go in there and it'd be like, uh, make better food. Turns out um, they got, the food's actually quite good. It's designed by a company called Revolution Foods, which makes really fantastic food for schools. So it wasn't about the quality of the food at all. But what you find out really quickly is when you use this kind of understanding of the students is that it's about socialization at lunch. I mean, I've been fooling around going to these classes all day, and I haven't been with my friends. And I get to lunch, and I really want to have a good time. I really want to be with my friends. And so, um, but the way we got it set up now, you come in, you stand in the line, you may waste most of the time that you're there um, just kind of standing in line waiting to get your food. And there's, you know, the person in the back kind of putting the food out. And so, to make a long story short, once you decided to, to design in this holistic way and that you will um, design the experience that is, is meaningful to students, you say, okay, let's make it the, a great ex- socialization experience. So what we do now, basically, is there's a big, big tables, and you come in, you sit with your friends right away, you get going and whatever, you got to catch up in what, what you need to, uh, to talk about and, and uh, hang out. And the food, using the students, you know, involving the students and the people who used to be behind the, the wall giving the food, uh, you ser- serve the food uh, family style. And here's the big win. So all these schools, these public schools, have this kind of federally mandated thing where if you get enough fruits and vegetables on their plates, that they then, um, that then they're paid for, right? The, the, the subsidies paid for. But it turns out that... Um, they don't measure whether they eat them or not. So here's the big win of, of the new plan, which is that they come in, they sit with their friends, they're hungry, we serve the fruits and vegetables first. They eat them. <laughs> what a deal. Somehow, so I'll go off, and if I, I'll try not to, but I sometimes go off on things called bird walks, you know, into, into, different, uh, into different places and so on. So I'm going to avoid that, but... <laughs> I wanted to right there. Anyway, um, so, uh, and so, and then, so then once you do that, you can just come, if you kind of look at the journey that the kid goes through at lunch, you can pick all those little points in the journey and make each one of them extraordinary. So you look at how they pay for 
lunch and they pay for lunch and it's and there's a, a stigma associated with whether you um, whether you're on the food subsidy or whether you're paying. So you go to a system that just has a card and you swipe the card. Nobody knows whether you're paying or whether you're not paying, right? Completely, it's just it goes on from there. Most of these projects, which is which are really this deep that IDEO gets involved. There's a moment, and the team's telling me about this moment while they're standing there, and one of the little boys is putting food in his backpack, and you're not allowed to put food in the backpack. That's not the thing. <clears throat> and the principal goes up to the little boy and says, I'm sorry, Johnny, you can't take food out of the cafeteria. What are you doing? And he says, my mother's hungry. So now guess what? We have a project about you know, how, do we, how do we make meals that are in little boxes that you can take home uh, to your family as a part of the food subsidy program. Anyway. So, anyway, think about that kind of project. You know, I used to put plastic boxes around computers exclusively, right? That I thought I was going to be happy with that, you know, for, for the rest of my life. I didn't know any better. It was great. And every once in a while, we'd get a chair or a, you know, a toothpaste tube. It was going to be great. <laughs> you know, but now if you... Um, now, if you go to IDEO's website and see the kind of project we're working on or go to the D school and look at the stuff we're doing in poverty in Africa and India, or it's just, um, it's just, uh, it's just amazing. Anyway, so um, that's, that's where we are. The, the next thing that happened to me, basically, was that, that um, I realized, so I realized that... Um, Everybody was creative. I used to really think, you know, like ad agencies have the creatives and the not creatives. I kind of had that worldview a little bit. But I started to realize as the D school started to take off, I noticed that the kids in the classes were all creative. I mean, if you just got them in the right mindset, right? And then that, that just like in kindergarten when everybody was creative, what happened along the way is they opted out of thinking of themselves as creative. They... Um, somebody told them that's a terrible picture of a horse, you know, that they've drawn. It, that, that's really about talent or about artistic ability. That's not whether they're creative or not. They could be a great pianist. We don't know, right? But so it, I didn't, at the D school, we didn't have to teach creativity. We didn't. It was there. All we had to do was remove the blocks that these people had. These, and it became kind of like, um, it became clear that they had fears, you know, like everybody's wildly creative in kindergarten, and some sometime they opt out of it, and by the time they get to adulthood, it's kind of like fixed in that thing, and they think of themselves as not, not creative. But it turns out that they are, and you 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 turn them on, and it's unbelievable. So, the method that we use um, to get to this point of creative confidence, hence the title of the book, um, is. Um, is guided mastery. We realized that we had to hold their hands. So I'm sitting there thinking in my body that I'm not a creative person. It turns out that if we hold your hand and give you a little success and then give you a little greater success, right? By the time you get over here somewhere, you think of yourself as a creative person. I used to have, I've been taught at Stanford for 35 years, and so it's been kind of fun you know, at the end of the school year, you know, the, you know the, one of your students who's particularly fond of you will bring their parents up to you and say, oh, Professor Kelly, this is my dad. 
all kinds of things are unveiled at that moment. Like the dad's, you know, got a beer belly and a ponytail, and he's Grateful Dead T-shirt. And then you realize why the the girl is named Anemone for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> never, never occurred to me before. So from that from that feeling of a few students coming up and thanking me for being their professor to literally hundreds of students in my office, one at a time, not a whole room, crying about how good it feels to be a creative person in their body. And they really quickly right, go to some biological reason. I mean, they can't just believe that everybody's creative. They say, you know, I always knew I was creative. My uncle was an architect. <laughs> I'm not even sure you get any of your uncle's genes. I'm not quite sure how that. But I always knew that, you know. My mother was a dancer, so I knew I was creative, right? And so it's just so um, exciting as a, um, as a professor to see their eyes sparkle as they, uh, they go out into the world. Now, if you really want to understand this stuff, reading my brothers in my book is like, um, that's a nice read on an airplane. But if you really want to like, understand this stuff, the psychologist that uh, is the pioneer in this area is named Albert Bandura. If you saw my TED talk, I talked a bit about him and his cure of snakes. You see this where so we're we're trying to we're we're trying to um, get rid of the fear of being judged. He's trying to get rid of the fear of things like snakes and spiders. He uses the same process. He holds their hand and moves them. You know, you know, look through the two-way mirror. See your friends can touch a snake and nothing happens. You know, move you move down the thing. We're doing the same thing by opening, uh, by opening people up in that, uh, in that way. So, um, but Bandura's work, what, he, what, he, what we call creative confidence, he calls self-efficacy. Self-efficacy. So if you have a psychology student, I'll bet you had to read about self-efficacy. Um, I try to get through the book. I'm more of a... I'd rather like build the Taj Mahal out of toothpicks than read a book, to tell you the truth in myself. But, um, but this, the, um, the, um, it's pretty thick, but his notion is exactly where we are, which is that self-efficacy is defined as that you kind of have a self, you have a sense of the world, and you have a sense of your place in it, and that you believe that you can achieve what you set out to do, right? Isn't that lovely? Think about that, how different that feels from most people's lives, right? That you have that sense that you can do what you set out to do. And that's what's happening, is that designers are now asked to do that, that we're out there in the world doing things that matter. I'll tell, I told one idea story, so I'm going to tell one uh, Stanford uh, D school story. So the students, uh, we have a class called Extreme Affordability, we have lots of, D-School has 23 classes. I'll say a word about the D-School. This will be my bird walk, D-School. So the D-School <clears throat> is this fabulous place because everybody who's there wants to be there. Think about that different compared to some of my other classes where it's a required chemistry class. You know, I mean, nobody wants to be there, right? But, well, chemists do, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but um, at the D-School, it's totally opt-in. That's the thing about the culture. Whatever anybody tells you about the D-School, here's the big deal opt-in. It's at a university. Everybody wants to be there. I don't pay the professors. So if you want to be a professor at the D-School, teach a class at the D-School, you got to figure out how to pay for it yourself. Either overload it on your schedule or have your department sanction it in some way. 
Um, most of the classes are not for credit. Or half of them are not for credit, right? And nobody gets a degree. Why the hell would you go there, right? <laughs> right? Unless it was, it, the stuff that was going on there was extraordinary. Unless it, we were doing stuff that really mattered. Unless it felt really good to be there. And that's the, that's the big thing about the D School. So there's many classes, there's pop-ups, you know, we teach in completely different ways. If I, can, if I can get a big shot to come in and teach, you know, two Saturdays in a row, that's a class, right? So, uh, and we have the normal 10-week uh, quarter classes, but. So we have a class called Extreme Affordability, and Extreme Affordability um, is doing all kinds of, I could tell you about, you know, all the different projects that are going on. We have classes in the, that look like law school classes, you know, improving the way you search for, so all, all these classes have people from different disciplines who've come up with the ideas. It's not in the class that the lawyers are center in, the other people, we, we don't let anybody in, in the class, we don't, each class is made up of a diverse group, right? So anyway, so um, we're looking at, um, we're looking at, uh, you know, health in these, in these countries where there's a lot of um, death due to, to low birth weight, meaning you're, you're out in, the, in, the, in a remote village, the, a baby's born, the baby can't keep warm um, in, order, in order to survive, basically, because there's just no way to do that out there. So they can't maintain birth weight. So we start looking at incubators, and so we go, and the funny thing is you go, you go into the hospitals and there's plenty of incubators. I mean, not plenty, but, there's, but they're, they cost $20,000, and there's a few men there, but nobody's there. And the reason is that's not where the babies are. You know, if you look pretty carefully, the babies are out, you know, way out in the, in the villages. So this team of, of Stanford students, the company is now, they made a company. It's now called Embrace. And there was an ABC News special said they'll probably save 300,000 lives a year with their very simple product, um, that's uh, basically a sleeping bag with a paraffin liner in it that you heat up, and then uh, you can heat up with hot water out wherever you are, and then you can maintain the, the baby's birth weight. But this is things that they came up with by looking at the problem from a, with a design lens, you know, rather than what other lens was, what, what other lens was used to decide that we needed $20,000 incubators in hospitals where the babies weren't. So um, it just keeps going like that. The The... It has a lot to do with understanding what's the problem. I mean, the, so much of the world is focused on problem solving, and we're good at that, and we should keep working on problem solving. But we really believe that the designer's task is trying to understand what's a problem that's worth working on, what's a non-obvious need that's out there in the world, and then we'll innovate around that, right? So um, another class at Stanford called... Um, uh, liberation Technologies, they're going in Africa and they're going to look at fires. They're somehow sponsored at looking at fires. And they get out into the villages and they find people are afraid of fires, but what they're really afraid of is losing their documents. That's what they're really afraid of, is their documents being lost. You know, we, if, we, if you, in, in our culture, yes, if you lose your driver's license, you have to go through the pain of going to the DMV and that's pretty nasty. But not like, the, not, not with the level that these people are worried about losing their documents, which shows they're allowed to be in this country, they're allowed to you know, squat in this house or whatever it is, but it's really important. So, so as usually happens, when you go and look at things in a holistic way, you reframe the problem to something that's really worth working on. So they found out that fires were interesting, but what was really important was getting them uh, comfortable with that their documents were secure. So these people started, this, this student group started a, a company that 
that goes around with computers and scans documents. Completely different than fire prevention, right? But it's the solution that made a difference in that community. Now everybody's documents in, this, in all these communities are uploaded to the cloud and they can be pulled down anytime that, that they're needed, right? By anybody, right? Anyway, so, so anyway, so it's a world, I, you know, I could have, I'm old, I could have retired and missed this whole design renaissance thing that's going on, but I'm glad I didn't. It's, um, it's an exciting time. We're being asked, creative people are being asked to work on really important problems, you know, the problems that matter in the world, and the good news is we're coming up with new to the world solutions. And so it's a really good time to be a designer. And I think I'll stop there and, let, and take some questions. How do you filter through to find the right clients, partners, to actually will let you to reframe the problem? Um, and when you do, how do you walk them through the process? And how, how do you um, still stay accountable for the results? Yeah. So... Um, yeah, so designers are only as good as their client, right? If you say, if you say who's the best designers in the world, look at who their clients are. That's probably, they got, probably got the best clients, uh, assuming equal talent, right? So, um, yeah, so the, the, um, the main thing for us is we're only going to be able to work our magic if we're allowed to, to find needs, right? If you come to us and say, we want you to design a toaster and it should have four slices and, you know, I mean, like, that's not a project to, to work. I mean, that's a fine project, I mean, but it's not, um, it's not what to work on. If you really want to innovate, you have to be allowed to understand what people value. So it's really like how far upstream is the project, right? But that doesn't even guarantee, that doesn't even guarantee it's a good project because it's so, so personal. What you really want to do is make sure you have the right person, you know, like the, the right champion in the company. So when my, you know, it's probably not a secret that a lot of my students end up at IDEO, and they, um, and they come to me, and they're, they, when they get their first project, they're, they're always like, I remember this woman, Betsy, and she came and said, my first project, it's industrial wipes. You know, I thought I was going to, like, cure cancer, and my first IDEO project is industrial wipes. I said, just wait, just wait. I knew who the client was. Just wait, right? And in this project, she met a person who still mentors her today, a fabulous CEO. She got to fly all over the world and look at how people you know, work in, in industry and came up with a satisfying, you know, new-to-the-world conclusion. So the answer to the question is it's not so easy to find out what's a good project because... Um, Smart, nice people tend to be, can make a, a, a industrial wipes a fantastic project if, it, if they want to. So, but um, the main, all things being equal, the, the right thing is to make sure that you are working on projects where you, um, you have the chance to understand, to reframe what the project is, not just the, the solution. Now, that's easy for me to say, right? You know, okay, we'll go and do that. Like, but that's not the kind of clients that come to me. That's, that's hard to do. Anyways, and so we have this um, work that we do uh, with lots of um, designers that we call double delivering. If you get hired by, a, I would never work for somebody who's not a, a reasonable person. That's, that's not going to go anywhere. But assuming that, but they just don't get what, a design, what the design thinking is or what it can do, we do what we call, uh, we talk them into doing what we call double deliver. So they have an expectation. You have a client who has an expectation of what you're going to deliver, 
knock the, knock the cover off the ball, do that, right? But you can also double deliver. You know, young, exciting designers have plenty of energy. Do it the way you would like to do it. I mean, do it in the human-centered way. Do it in, the, 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 um, in a way that comes up with lots of ideas rather than just the one that they've already prescribed, right? And deliver, and deliver that. So here, uh, here Miss Client, here's the, here's the thing you asked for. But you know, I was just like thinking about it and working on it, spent 400 hours over here. And look at this, right? You know, you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe you don't need, you know, a new interior for your train. Maybe what you need is an entire experience that involves, you know, chocolate on the pillow when you arrive at your seat. I mean, I don't know, whatever it is. But so um, anyway, so uh, so there there. The power of being able to come up with new to the world ideas is so intoxicating for people that if you um, if you need to if you can't find the client that's open minded yet, but it's really as we get into these big organizations, some of the so ideas work with companies that start out you know wanting a cultural change for you know and it takes us ten years to do that, but the way that happens is we start a little brush fire over here of design you know of thinking on this way. And pretty soon that gets noticed. And people are competitive. Somebody says, well, geez, the, the, that group at my company did this, and look what they got. And they're getting all the praise because they come up with this new the world thing. We should do it that way. And then you know, it takes a lot of years, unfortunately, but in a big company. And so you get all these little things going, and pretty soon you have a culture that embraces design in the way we mean you know, design thinking and, and so forth. I notice you have kind of two models at IDEO for assembling teams uh, around projects. So your traditional model has been smaller teams that can kind of fit in a room and work together in a physical space. And now you have, you know, um, design by community, we'll call it. These right. Platforms. Open IDEO. Open yeah. IDEO, OI Engine, yeah. even some of the courses that you're uh, are yes. sort of platforms for. Crash, we have a crash course at the right. of and uh, the acumen even is yeah. kind of a platform for teaching design. You know, so, you know I do better than I do, Charlie. <laughs> There's HCD Connect. <laughs> um, so these platforms, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, what is the, what do you see the future um, holding for teams? I mean, is it, you know, what, and then what's the role of, like, a trained professional in the mix? Is it is it going to be completely designed by community, or is it going to be a mixture? You know, what's the role? No, I, I think yes. That's a good question. I mean, the the, the big move is, the big move was we used to think of design as an individual sport. We could name the player. You know, even though they had a, a lot of people in their office doing the work. Actually, right? We would think that the designer was the person in charge, and we we have successfully moved it to a team sport, which is great. Now, are we are we like are we ignoring, you know, Leonardo da Vinci kind of, you know, people? Like, you know, and I think the answer to that is no. I think you got a basketball team. You want Michael Jordan or not? You know, take your, you know, so, so, um, so um, these teams, um, these teams continue to use the magical part of the design. So I get that. I get that all the time. So okay, some misguided people. I'm misguided. That's strong. Um, that are they're on my case about. You're saying that you're saying you're saying doctors and lawyers are designers. I'm a designer. I went to Parsons, you know, and they 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 didn't they don't know anything about design, right? 
And the answer is um, that the design person at OI Engine or or open idea whether there's still a design person who is the, the process leader that's saying we should do this now, right? And who's still contributing. I mean, the best thing that happens in in um, in teams is that everybody owns the idea. But the truth is, we're trying to make rock star designers who lead those groups, who are actually, you know, um, you know, the ones who are driving the overall creative nature of it, including some of the individual ideas. But so the place for, for, um, it's just a little bit like when I graduated from school, I thought that, you know, design or engineering was going to be the most important thing. And then I get out there and these business people were driving the bus. I mean, who, who anointed them head? But they were. So I had to figure out, so you had to figure out how you're going to make your contribution given that the bus is being driven by somebody else, right? The good news is we're driving the bus more than we ever have before. But you got, you got to, you got to step up and the, the, my, the role that I always say to the designer who's worried about that in the group is step right up there and lead the process. That's our role, right? As I mentioned earlier, David and I still had plenty to discuss on the phone. And first things first, one of my favorite parts of the lecture is the term bird walks. I had never heard that before. <laughs> As I get older, I have more and more bird walks, but the hard part is getting back. You know, like, I am guilty of that as well. Because, because of bird walk, it's by definition something I really want to talk about and I'm passionate about. I go way out there and then I forget where was the, the departure point in the more linear talk. And I got to like stumble. I usually get back, but I have to stumble my way back to the, to the real talk. Yeah. And the story you were telling when you mentioned bird walks for the first time was about that child trying to take lunch home. And I found that to be a funny parallel because much like how a digression can lead to a new idea, right. this yeah. new project of figuring out how kids can bring home food to their families is in itself a bird walk from the original project of designing the social lunchtime experience. Yeah. If you hadn't gone deep enough, if you... So... um the way we would have done design 20 years earlier, I'll give us a break. I mean, it might have been 10 years earlier, but, you know, we would have had a bunch of smart people sitting in a room talking to each other, you know, drawing stuff and passing it around. We wouldn't have been so deep in to see that. You know, we would have, we, if we were lucky, we'd have talked to a few kids and, you know, we would talk to the principal and stuff. But we wouldn't be there, that visceral thing of, you know, like realizing that the big ideas for us to build on, to design on, to, to problem solve, to do all the things that we're good at, um, come from this deep immersion in, um, in, in what's going on. You know, the, what we call bias towards action, we're in a minute. And so it's a great example of how design has um, changed um, with respect to where our motivation comes from. So speaking of change, in the list of prep uh, that I sent over to your assistant, I was looking at a little history of your lectures, and it's been two years since Creative Mornings. I watched your 60 Minutes piece, which was dated 2013, and your last TED Talk was 2012. Yeah, I, I read that. You made me think like... like um, I'm old news, you know, I mean, look at all, all, all the good stuff happened a while ago. No, I'm teasing. No, not at all. Um, but you refer to a design renaissance, and I'm curious how you feel about how far we've come since then. Well, 
Um, uh, almost everything I've seen is the pendulum keeps swinging in the right direction for us so far. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a person who's critical, right? I mean, that's part of being a designer. So I'm, I'm always afraid the pendulum's going to start swinging back the other way. And somebody's going to say, you know, this design stuff is just uh, common sense. We don't need these guys, which is true. It is just common sense. But anyway, no, I've really seen nothing but uh, an increase in the Renaissance. I mean, you know, like uh, that was pretty early in some ways. And, you know, like I love that quote, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And and so many places are just now in the world are just now discovering the power of design and making and empowering people in their world to to be, you know, um, you know, design leaders and innovators and, and counting on it as a way to um, to kind of routinely innovate or to help their company or help their organization. So I think we're still like pu pushing that that future on the rest of the world for sure. And the thing for IDEO and for the D school is we continue to get more and more, um, you know, complex and kind of systematic problems, you know, like redesign the entire educational system of the country of Peru, you know, which is a fantastic project or, you know, or just like, you know, redesign the school lunch or we just finished a project that's uh, been publicized, which is redesigning the voting experience in Los Angeles. And well, you know, that's the largest constituency. Los Angeles is the largest kind of voting constituency in the, in the U.S., maybe in the world. And so, you know, and that's very complex to make everybody happy and make it easy for them to vote at that machine, you know. And so the wonderful thing is that um, the reason we're able to be successful is um, this approach has not been taken, right? So before when these problems were given they weren't given to designers or they weren't given to people with, with that were very diverse who could build on each other's ideas using design tools and so the kind of look at potential technological solutions exclusively or, or like business solutions you know you hire a management consulting firm and stuff and so um in some ways there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in the in the human-centered thing because we have not been entrusted in the past to be the ones that set the agenda for these large strategic projects, uh, complex projects. And so um, the fact that, you know, this is the first time that we've mined this area, uh, I think makes it easier for us to come up with breakthrough ideas that if design had had a history of this or somebody had had a history of doing this in a human-centered way before. So I think we're lucky that um, we're, we're new. Our, our methods are new. Right, to the world. right. And I hear you say that IDEO takes on the redesign of the education system of Peru. And I can't help but wonder what your take on the United States education system is, because it's undoubtedly flawed. And I'm curious if there are any efforts on IDEO's end. Yeah, no, I, you know, and, and, and it's probably our primary focus. Both IDEO and the D-School have... Um, well, the D school only has one major laboratory, and it's K twelve, and and our kind of our most uh, kind of one of our most interesting labs inside of IDEO is K twelve, and it's mostly focused on the U S. But the problem is so difficult that you kind of run with your hair on fire, screaming when you try to get into the middle of trying to solve the the U S. problem. But I do believe we're having some success at starting little brush fires at making there, there are examples of things that are really interesting ways to go in different schools, 
you know, uh, around, you know, around the world, Nueva here, Riverdale. I mean, there's there's all, you know, different public schools that we're working with where we've tried things and they're catching hold. So um, it's not that there's a lack of good ideas or lack of good people or like it's the problem is the system is so broken that we're really having trouble getting traction. But it's not from trying and not from having lots of really good people working on it. So I am. I've seen no big systemic improvement that's making me, I'm, again, remember, I'm critical and I'm not very Pollyanna, Pollyanna, and so I haven't seen a lot, but I have seen lots of effort and lots of good ideas, and I think that's probably the first step to, to change in the U.S. and the K-12 system that, that we have. I'm, I'm hopeful, if not, um, if not Pollyanna about it. Well, that's good to hear, and I'm sure it's an insane challenge. Um, and I'm shaking my head now because of the segue I'm about to make. But there's one last question before we let you go, and it's how we end every episode. How do you challenge yourself creatively? Um, well, that's a really easy question. I don't know if it's um, I don't know how useful it is, but I'm um, I grew up as a Midwestern kind of uh, blue collar family, and um, my whole thing is getting physical. So uh, I have a studio and a and a, a shop machine shop at my house. And um, I mean, the two things I do, I guess, is go wander around San Francisco and look up, you know, be a, be a tourist in San Francisco is one way I inspire myself. But the main thing is, you know, I get up real early in the morning, four or five o'clock in the morning and just go into my studio and start making stuff with my hands. It can be, you know, gifts for people or it can be some new part for some lamp that I'm making or whatever. But I mean, Somehow when you get into that, you know, where they call flow or whatever it is, somehow when I get into that space and visually seeing things happen, you know, like right in front of me, when it calms my mind, you know, it's my meditation, but it also um, allows me to work on other problems. Somehow it's a state of I'm attentive, but relaxed. And so lots of things that I, that, that I intend to work on s- seem to resolve themselves even if it's not the physical thing I'm working on, but that that state is just who I am. And so uh, so that's that's how I inspired. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, some people might take a pill or go to the sh- go sit in the shower or whatever they have. I know that if I go work in my studio or in my shop, that um, I'll have better answers to other questions, not just the ones that I'm working on in, in that facility. Perfect. I really couldn't have imagined a better way to end this season. Having asked that question every episode, it seems fitting that you'd be the one to send us off. Okay. I hope that works for you. Thanks a lot. It certainly does. Thank you so much for your time, David. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. And just like that, a second season is in the books. If you're a fan of what we're doing here, please head over to the iTunes podcast section and leave us a rating or review. Our thanks to David Kelly for this week's episode and all of this season's speakers and chapter hosts for being involved. I'm so honored to play a part in this incredible organization, so my personal thanks to Tina Roth-Eisenberg and everyone on her Creative Mornings team, especially Lisa Cifuentes for all of her behind-the-scenes work on this podcast. Special thanks to Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios for working with me to make each episode what it is, and Jessica Cousin for her brutal honesty. This episode was produced and edited by Esmateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin in collaboration with Esmateo Music. This week's Rooster comes courtesy of a very supportive Creative Mornings New York audience, and you can follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning, just remember it's singular, and use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. 
For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com. Oh, that's so good. That's perfect. That's it. Thank you so much, everybody.